<laughs> An orphan boy was raised by a princess. It sounds like many fairy tales. When he grew to be a man, he was incredibly strong and incredibly wise. But the king of the realm exiled him. And he had to go far away to a land where he was forgotten. He was a nobody. And he tended sheep. Many years later, God appeared to this man in a miraculous way and told him that he had to return to the land of his birth and speak to the king, but now a different king, and demand that the king release the slaves that were building his structures, the same people from whom this man was born. His response to this great adventure was, Nah, I don't think so. <laughs> it was not one of faith. So I, I could see by your faces that uh, you figured out this was Moses pretty early on, and bravo. Uh, <clears throat> and today in Second Thessalonians, uh, we're going to see faith. Um, and, and Paul is going to commend them for their increase in faith. And so we're going to pause for a bit here and look at faith and see how it increases it's an understatement to say that faith is a big part of the Bible, right? Faith is an enormous subject in the Bible. And I think all of us know what it is, but not all of us have as much of it as we would like, and not all of us know how it increases. Uh, and so the Bible does offer a definition of faith, and that's telling. You know, God doesn't take it for granted that we know what it is. So he defines it in a few places. And then God tells us, actually, the Lord himself tells us how it increases. And that means that we all have to do it. Uh, if the Lord describes something that we're to do, then we're to do it. Um, but all of us are going to be like Moses. All of us are going to go, um, yeah, at some things and eh, maybe not so much at other things. And as you know, with Moses, he was not confident in himself. He didn't think. Uh, in fact, literally, the Hebrew in the Hebrew, he tells God that he's uncircumcised of lips, which I know is a gross thing to think about. But it, what he means there is that he's he can't speak. You know, he's uh, heavy flesh on the lips, kind of bumbling. You know, I'm, I'm not good at speaking. And God didn't care about that, did it? Did He? And and, and so we'll see that uh, you know God encouraged Moses uh, all the way through, just like He's going to encourage us. Without faith, it's impossible to live the Christian life. And so uh, let's uh, start in Second Thessalonians chapter one, and let's begin with prayer, thanking God for. The instructions that he gives us in his grace and thanking him for, um, at least I do, I, I thank him for his perseverance today, uh, his, his uh, inability to quit on us and, and to continue to minister to each of us so that our faith does increase. So with that, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you so much for your instructions in your word, the revelation of you and your word, and the fact that you are what you are, uh, which is a Lord and God of graciousness, of patience, uh, for you have called every one of us who have believed in your Son, and by that calling, you have made us to be what your word says. In our pride, we fight against that. We uh, don't agree with you often, but you don't quit on us, and you keep pushing us, drawing us, disciplining when we need it. And therefore, God, you are faithful, our faithful Father, who loves us more than we can possibly know. And we, uh, as sinners, Father, who don't live up to what we would even want to be, um, which is like your son. We thank you for him and the sacrifice that he's given 
through which we have an eternal destiny that is guaranteed with you. This gives us great comfort, and it also makes us long to be like him. And so, Father, through your Spirit, may our hearts be enlightened. We ask in Christ's name, amen. So our theme today is to live by faith, that we are to live by faith, and it is to always be increasing. And this increasing, as we'll see, and we'll prove this through our Lord's instruction, that'll be at the end of the lesson, which is our endurance. Uh, it's the, the method of increasing faith is not some quick, fix, sexy thing. It's not, it, it is plugging away in obedience, plugging away in endurance, doing what we're told to do in everything, and doing it no matter what. Uh, and, and that's what's going to increase our faith. And, uh, it's, and it's going to take a while. Uh, you might, you're not going to see results overnight. I think at times you will, and it'll, it'll shock you how much faith that you have accumulated, but you're not always going to see that. Uh, at times it's going to feel like your faith isn't increasing at all. And, and that in fact, that you start even doubting yourself and God and his word. And those times will come. And those are not times where you're, it'll feel like you're going backwards. But oftentimes they are not. They are actually big steps forward. Because God is removing false conceptions. And when God removes false conceptions... We find ourselves on shaky ground. At least we think it's shaky, but it's really not. Because what God is, is removing is everything else other than the foundation that is Christ. And someday we're going to look down at that foundation and we're going to say that the only thing that was ever there was him. And, and, and as time goes on in our own lives, that's exactly what we're finding out. Uh, Christians are born again by faith, but they don't actually, all of us don't live by faith. And, you know, for for those of us who, or for any in the Christian body who who love the Lord and, and want to live by faith, we know that we don't live by faith all the time either. Uh, and so uh, we know what life is without faith. Hey, Gail, can you turn me down just a little? Because uh, just a little bit, that, that's it. There we go. Thank you. Uh, if we don't live by faith in our Christianity, we become dull and lifeless. Because faith is vibrant, and it's vibrant because of what it's believing. And uh, faith is a absolute uh, conviction that what God says is true. And that's all. It's really what it is. is. We, from the Scripture, believe that what God says is true. Uh, if we don't live by faith, many things occur that make our lives very dull. Uh, the church becomes a minor organization that we feel we should attend. Uh, other Christians in the body of Christ become nothing more than acquaintances when, as we saw on Sunday, they're actually our real eternal family. Uh, life becomes secular and worldly with a little bit of sprinkling here and there of Christianity or churchiness, I guess. The Lord Jesus will only play a minor role in our lives. And the Father and the Holy Spirit will be nothing more than passing thoughts. And so we become entangled in worldly things, which something that Paul warned us in Second Timothy, his last letter, that he warned us not to be entangled in the affairs of everyday life. We take care of them, but we're not entangled in them. So what happens to our eternity? It's a good question. What happens to our eternity if we don't glorify Christ now in time? Well, and and we'll see it today. We're going to be judged by Christ. We're rewarded by him. And, you know, if we don't glorify him in time, what does that mean to our reward in eternity? And yet, as I have found, and it's, it's been a contention with me for a long time, and I think still is, it might have given me some bias, I think, that I I saw a lot of people in the past striving, or so-called striving in the Christian life, because they wanted to earn crowns in heaven. And their whole motivation for, like, doing anything here 
was to get stuff there. And it ended up being a selfish motivation, in my opinion. And that we should love one another because we love love. You know, uh, there is definitely reward to it, for sure. But if we're after the reward and we don't love the substance, then what do we really love but ourselves? And that, that has been my opinion, I think, and it, it still is. Uh, so... All of us are called to glorify Christ. That's in our letter in 2 Thessalonians in a couple of places. We're to gain the glory of Christ. And if we haven't glorified Christ in our lives, what will our lives have counted for? When we come to the end of it, what will our lives have counted for? That's something we want to consider before we get there. For instance, and I, I heard this today, in 1969... A few months after Apollo 11 landed on the moon, a Rhode Island senator, John Pastore, was interrogating Fermilab physicist Robert Wilson. This was at a Senate hearing on whether the federal government should spend $250 million to build a new collider, particle collider. Uh, Now, it's so funny because in 1969, $250 million was astronomical, to use a pun. Um, in our day and age, it's office supplies for the White House, probably. But anyway, so uh, unfortunately, the senator is from Rhode Island. It really kind of irritates me. But it's, Rhode Island politics has always been kind of like Oregon's, uh, very blue and dumb. But anyway, uh, <clears throat> so this hearing is about whether the Senate should approve, the federal government should approve $250 million to build a new collider. This is months after Apollo 11 landed on the moon and returned the astronauts home. Uh, What's his name and what's his name? (laughs) Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin. And it took them home. And, you know, it was astronomical. There's that word again. An amazing accomplishment. And uh, the senator wanted to know, his questioning, his line of questioning was, would this collider add to the security of the country? No, sir, I don't believe so, Wilson answered. Nothing at all, said the senator. Nothing at all, said Wilson. The senator, it has no value in that respect, national security. Wilson replied, it only has to do with the respect with which we regard one another, the dignity of men, our love of culture. It has to do with, are we good painters, good sculptors, great poets? I mean, all the things we really venerate in our country and are patriotic about. It has nothing to do directly with defending our country except to make it worth defending. And I put that quote up there with pictures of Apollo 11. Those are pictures off of NASA's website. Of course, it's all fake, right? It never really happened. That's a studio in California somewhere, as some people believe. But notice the quote, and this struck me today, that, you know, the, the physicist is saying, does it have anything to do with national security Well, no, but it's something to be proud about so that our nation, who won the space race against the Soviets here, by the way, and we bankrupted the Soviets as they tried to keep up with us, that it it gave a national pride and it made what we have worth defending. At the opening of this book in the first chapter, it's called Rocket Men, Uh, I can't remember the author's name. He writes some great history. But uh, he was writing about the vehicle that took the Saturn V rocket at one mile an hour from the building they built it in to the launch pad. Just the vehicle. And to build something like that that would travel across swampy Florida without tipping the stupid rocket. Oh, it's not a stupid rocket. Without tipping the rocket over, that was cost hundreds of millions of dollars. Just the, the truck that took it there was amazing. Tie that 
to faith. What? Faith increasing to maturity that lacks nothing because the Lord Jesus Christ has fulfilled what we are is kind of like the idea that Wilson had here. Why is it worth it? It's quality of life. It makes life worth living. Faith increasing has the same effect of filling our lives with that which is truly worth living. The fact that I, from this body, from this brain, from this soul, can actually love others like Christ loves, that's worth something. The fact that I can so control myself that I can do the Lord's will and he, as a master potter, can use this clay vessel as a vessel of honor, for his honor, for whatever he wants to do. And when God wants to do something, it's usually pretty fantastic. He could put a man on the moon. God could with, uh, what, itching his nose, you know, would be harder for God to do. Uh, and because he created, with his word, right, God created the entire universe. But yet here we have the Lord Jesus Christ inside of us, the Holy Spirit inside of us, this enormous and packed, packed with fullness, truth in these pages that we could spend a hundred lifetimes studying and not come to the end of. And all of it is beckoning us to believe something that's invisible and incredible. And it really is incredible. Are we too busy? Are we too busy to explore it? we got too much going on. Don't you know that i got to watch things on TV or on my phone or on Facebook. i got work to do. i got this to do. i got that to do. And really, when we think about it in comparison to, you know, that's like NASA using all of those resources to, I don't know, take a man to the grocery store or something. You know, instead of putting them on the moon, um, it's a waste of resources. The context of our passage is the second letter of Thessalonians, written less than a year after the first letter, from the same location in Corinth to the same people by the same man, the Apostle Paul. And therefore, the theme is the same. It's encouraging believers to maintain fighting the good fight of faith. And here, we're going to focus on faith today. We'll explore the whole thing. It's three short chapters. It won't take us long. But it's here also that, you know, if you're into eschatology, this is where we're going to branch off and look at that, meaning, you know, what's going to happen in the end? What, what does the Bible say about the coming of Christ? Because Paul references it in both letters multiple times. But faith here, just like it is in the whole Bible, is a huge subject. And because it is so... I think it's overlooked. Even I was tempted to just roll by it and go on to something else. I'm like, everybody knows what faith is. And then I paused for a second. I was like, wait a minute, do I even know what faith is? And as I started to ask myself that question, I started to think, well, we should look at it. I mean, all of us can define it. I think everybody in the world knows what faith is. But, you know, what does God say about our faith? Uh, And, of course... The word faith, believing, uh, in, in just in the New Testament alone is mentioned hundreds and hundreds of times. So we'll focus on a, on a bit here. And what we're going to focus on is the increasing part also. So look at 1 Timothy 1, sorry, 1 Timothy, 2 Thessalonians. Look at some book in your Bible, if you will. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul and Silvanus and Timothy. Silvanus is Silas. We're pretty sure that they're both the same guy. Uh, To the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. (coughs) You think Paul forgot that he wrote God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ in the first line and then he wrote them again in the second line? Of course not. But this is his salutation. It's very common for Paul to write. In most of his letters, he starts off with grace and peace to you which I thought about looking at the words grace and peace as Paul uses them. 
But we're moving on to faith. We'll, we'll get to those, I'm sure. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren. This is also very common in Paul's letters, that he gives thanks. There's one letter that he doesn't give thanks, and it's to the Galatians. And it's because he's mad at them, we would assume. Because he does, he calls them foolish, stupid Galatians. Why have you done what you've done with the doctrine I gave you? He doesn't give thanks for them. And every other letter he gives thanks. And here he does the same. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as is only fitting, because your faith is greatly enlarged, and the love of each one of you towards one another grows even greater. So I decided here we're going to look at all three, faith, love, and endurance. And and endurance is going to apply to both. Uh, If our faith is going to increase, notice that's exactly what Paul says here, your faith is greatly enlarged. That uh, verb, greatly enlarged, is right here. It's the only time in the Bible it's used is huper oxano. And huper oxano is oxano, which is much used several times in the New Testament, uh, is, <clears throat> anytime I get to use my pen, I like the pen. Where's oxano? This, this word is common, common. It's used several times. It means to increase. It means to increase in size and in strength and things like that, often used in an agricultural uh, framework of uh, you plant a seed and it increases. <coughs> but what Paul does here is add the prefix pair" to the front of it. And it turns out that the Apostle Paul, of all Greek writers, is the only guy to really do this. See, that word never existed before. But who pairs a word that means above, or uh, on, it means uh, on behalf of, or above. In this case, it means above. And he just sticks it on to oxano, and so he used the word increasing, and he put who pair on it. So he went, who, it's like hyper-increasing. That's where we get our word hyper from. And so it means to grow wonderfully and increase abundantly, And the thing you want to also look at here is that it's in the present tense, which means that it's continuous. When Paul says, your faith is increasing, he's not saying it increased and it's finished, but it keeps increasing. So by saying it this way, we (coughs) come to know, and it makes perfect sense, that our faith is to be increasing our whole lives. And that's an exciting idea. Because it means I'm never going to stop growing. So no matter how old I get, I'm going to keep learning. Right? It's what keeps the brain alive is learning. And it, it's no it doesn't mean it's a guarantee. It's just against old <laughs> what am I going to get myself in trouble here and say old people, brain disease, you know, it's going to happen to us all. We're going to start forgetting stuff. We're already started, right? But, uh, you know, keeping ourselves engaged in, in a life that is of eternal value has got to be good for the brain, right? It's we're constantly learning. We're constantly growing. The same principles that we've known for decades are going to become newer and better to us. The greatest of principle is the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and so this is where faith is pointed at. Because you know, faith is not pointed at anything visible. I don't need faith to know that this building is here, or the floor is here, or this pulpit is here. It's always here. You know, It's solid. It's tangible. But what I need faith for continually, and it needs to increase, is faith in the things that God says are real. God has made a world in which the important things, all of them, are invisible. It's really true. God has made a world in which the important things, the eternal things, are every one of them invisible. I mean, even the Lord himself, which he's, he's visible at the right hand of God, but we're not there to see him. Not yet. And the things that are temporary are all visible, including our physical bodies. Now, Paul prayed for this. We should take a pit stop here and see that. Go back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. 
which is another plug for prayer. This is fulfilled prayer by Paul, 1 Thessalonians 3.10. We night and day keep praying. In 1 Thessalonians 5, he told us, he commanded us without ceasing, pray. We night and day keep praying most earnestly that we may see your face, which is interesting, that part of the prayer did not come to fruition, not, not in the timing I think that Paul wanted. But we night and day keep praying most earnestly that we may see your face and may complete what is lacking in your faith. And Paul here does mean instruction. You know, so the fact that in the context he is saying that we want to see you. In other words, we want to be with you. And what would Paul be doing and Silas and Timothy with him? But instructing them in the ways of Christ, the ways of God. And that would complete their faith. Now, this might lead us to think that the key to increasing faith is knowledge. Now, knowledge is certainly a part of it. Uh, And is it a key? Well, it's not necessarily true that if you increase knowledge, you increase faith. Because you could have a ton of knowledge and not believe it. You could have a lot of knowledge, and when the chips are down and you're faced with believing God or not, that you you might have a life where you most often don't believe God, and therefore you don't follow through in obedience to His Word. And so you have there's a lot of people who have knowledge but don't have faith. The Pharisees had a lot of knowledge, but they didn't have faith in it. And the great example of this is the Exodus generation used by the writer of Hebrews. It says that they didn't mix the promises of God with faith, and so it didn't profit them. The word of God didn't profit them because it wasn't mixed with faith. Which certainly we need to continue to increase in knowledge. We have to. But what is vital here in looking at faith is my belief in that knowledge. And I'll show you a couple of examples where in our pride, we don't actually believe what God says. If we fall, if we get into the attitude like Moses did of, I can't do it, I'm not good enough, look, God sent you. So when God sends you, Moses, you're good enough. Uh, when God says to us, you will do this, you will accomplish this, I put my power into you for you to accomplish it, and then we say, and we think it's some form of humility, but it's not, that we say, well, no, not me, not me, me, oh my, I can't do it, then you're not believing his word. Pride in us always has an opinion of what is true. Absolute humility always says what God says is true. But pride always, in our pride, whether it's on the one end of the spectrum or another, whether we're full of self-doubt and self-pity or we'll full of arrogance and self-exaltation and self-aggrandizement that, uh, you know, either end of the spectrum in our pride, we have formed an opinion that does not agree with the truth of God. So faith is what God says is true of life, and this is always antithetical to what the world says. Faith will always have us swimming against the current. And I, I love the way that the, the Chosen used that depiction in their intro to all their videos, uh, all their shows, I guess you'd call them, that every time uh, the fish becomes a believer, it changes color and it, changes, it turns completely 180 and swims against the current. And that's because what faith, you know, what faith looks upon and believes is not something that the world believes. The world can't see it. To the natural-minded man, the things of God are foolishness in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. So, as uh, Jesus said, he said, lose your life that you may find it. To the world, that sounds absolutely stupid. It's antithetical that you should put self first in the world. And that's what the Lord said. In, in our world, which is the kingdom of God, that the servant among you is the greatest. Not the greatest, not the king, not the benefactor is the greatest. So, Paul gives thanks to God for the faith and love of the Thessalonians. Where is God here? 
that Paul gives thanks to God, not to the Thessalonians. So you see that in the passage again in verse 3, or I can read it for you. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as is only right or is only fitting because your faith is greatly enlarged. We give thanks to God. It is God who has created the world of the invisible of which we must believe. It is God who increases our faith. It is God who encourages us. And, uh, you know, he uses people, he uses circumstances. He definitely mostly uses his word. All right, go to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. In 2 Corinthians 10, we're looking at growing faith in Corinth. And a couple of passages here in 2 Corinthians. So in verse 15, 2 Corinthians 10, 15, Paul writes, But with the hope that is, sorry, but with the hope that as your faith grows, we will be within our sphere enlarged even more by you. Now, I know how cryptic that sounds. And I didn't want to spend a whole lot of time here, so I, I kept it short. But uh, <clears throat> Paul here is this sphere that Paul is talking about is the sphere of his gospel outreach. In the context of this, Paul is speaking about how far his gospel goes. So if you had a map of the Roman Empire and you put you know, Paul in the middle of a circle, how big is that circle? How far does Paul go? What Paul says here is that if your faith grows, then my gospel outreach from Corinth will be wider. It'll be enlarged by you. So notice what Paul says here. What Paul is saying is that faith is the vehicle by which the gospel expands. So why would he need to say that to the Corinthians is because the Corinthians, who are completely enveloped in Greek culture and hate to give it up, they see outward manifestations of strength and good looks and, you know, orators of that Greek world were striking figures uh, who would stand on a, you know, stump somewhere and be handsome and, and you know and they they criticize Paul for being an ugly little pipsqueak with a you know with not a very impressive voice they did they criticize him for that and Paul says it's the word that matters not the person who's giving it what Paul is saying here is that the gospel increases as faith increases look at verse of that 15 is that 15 i think i've my I'm going to blame my computer. Sometimes it pops in the wrong verse. Uh, Yeah. It's verse 7. Look at verse 7. It's wrong in my notes. You are looking at things as they are outwardly. Right? You're looking at things as they are outwardly. Paul, you're not very impressive. You know, how are we going to spread the gospel in Corinth? We need the best speakers with the best voices who look the best, the handsomest guys. Don't send the ugly people out there. Send out the handsome. Don't send the guy with the, you know, the nasally voice. No one wants to listen to him. Get the, the deep-throated guy out there. That's what they want. And Paul says, look, you're looking at things outwardly. What do we see that faith is? The things that are not seen. How is the gospel going to spread? Think about how churches do it in our modern world. That course I took, the online course I took, an online preaching... He, the guy and I loved it. I, I really did enjoy it. But he could not get around the fact that if you're going to attract people online, you've got to look good on TV. It's the only way to do it. And unless I get a bunch of plastic surgery, it ain't going to happen. Or I get a stand-in double. 
I know what you're saying. And I said, no, Joe, you're, you're good. You're good looking. No, I, I understand. I've watched countless hours of video of myself to complete that course. And oof, I wouldn't watch it. You know. But so what's going to spread the gospel is faith. It's my faith in God's Word that's going to make me an effective teacher of it. It's your faith in God's Word that's going to make you an effective witness of it in whatever your ministry is. It's not anything worldly. And that's what Paul's getting at to the Corinthians. Also in Corinth is we live by faith. I really dug this picture, you know, it's kind of the... The Sand Prince poem, uh, the two prints in the sand, and they turn into one. And why? Why is that? It's very. It's graphically. It's 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 wonderful because it does depict the fact that I've got to come to a place where my life is Christ and Christ is my life, and there's not much difference there. I'm not going to be perfect, so there'll always be some difference. But as my faith grows, I become more and more like Him, and I depend more and more on Him. Look at 2 Corinthians 5, 6. Therefore, being always of good courage and knowing that while we're at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. And here it is, very famously, for we walk by faith and not by sight. But notice the context. We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. Verse 10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Do you notice how often this passage is coming up? It is not my doing, I guarantee you. God wants us knowing that we are going to stand before Jesus Christ and be judged for our deeds. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one of us may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. I love the lack of detail. It's God is saying to us, look, just know this. Don't get all caught up in, well, wait a minute, my sins are judged. Can they be brought up and all of that? Don't worry about that. What you need to be concerned about is the fact that one day you're going to stand before Jesus Christ and you are going to be judged for your deeds. And you're going to be recompensed accordingly. Okay, so what's the context though? The context is, I want to be home with the Lord, but I can't be right now. Isn't that right? In verse 6 again, being always of good courage, knowing that while we're at home in the body, we're absent from the Lord. We walk by faith, not by sight. We're of good courage and prefer to be absent from the body and at home with the Lord. We'd rather be in heaven. But until we are, it is our ambition in verse 9 to be pleasing to Him. And it will be our ambition when we're in heaven. But right now, it's our ambition. And He's not here And his way of life is invisible. The manifestations of it can be visible, of course. But really, the truth of it all is invisible. Um, the, The truth of God's Word, the Holy Spirit within, who's given me the power to accomplish it and to understand it. Uh, And my, my faith is invisible. It's not a tangible thing. So we have as our ambition to be pleasing with, to him. So, and therefore this, what are we being judged for? Deeds. And deeds, ergon, is, is the Greek word. It's also, inter, uh, it's also translated works, and that's what they are. They're works. They're good works. So we walk by faith, and the result is we do good works. And that's exactly when we started this New Testament series, uh, we started in James. And James said, faith without works is dead, James 2.26. Right? And he didn't mean that we're unbelievers. He meant that if you have faith and you have no works, he said, you're useless. Right? What is your faith? Faith in what? And that's what the Lord is going to tell us. The Lord's going to tell us, look, you only need faith the size of a mustard seed. We say, oh, that's awesome. All I need is a little bit. It's true. You don't need much. 
But what your faith is in makes all the difference. You can't have a false image of Christ in your mind or a false image of the way of life in your mind. Hence where the knowledge comes in. So faith cannot, uh, this is a quote from uh, Wearsby, uh, writes an excellent commentary actually on the entire Bible. Uh, Wearsby wrote, in, in reference to our verse, a faith that cannot be tested cannot be trusted. And we know from James 1, and for the sake of time, we're going to go to Luke chapter 17. I'll read the, no, no, actually, no, 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 no. We need to see Moses because we started with Moses. Go to Exodus 5. James said, consider it all joy, brethren, when you encounter various trials. We've quoted that one a few times over the last month or two. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. So what is testing for? To produce endurance. Trials are God's way of increasing our faith. So when the difficult time comes, you know, and I, you know, not long ago, I had, I was tested in my mind. It wasn't a physical test at all. It was a mental test of faith that I failed miserably, and it made me miserable. And and I knew, I knew, as every, I'm not often that miserable. I was miserable, and and I know that God is teaching me something. I knew it was coming. And that actually helped me be miserable. (laughs) It didn't get me out of the misery. You wouldn't have wanted to be around me. It was all day. I couldn't shake it. But I knew something was coming. I've been through it enough that I know the relief is coming. And in that relief, when it comes, God is going to show me something. And he did. He showed me something that in no other way could I have seen it. And for me, I had to fail the test to actually see it. And the reason being is because it's a necessary improvement of character that uh, all of us have to go through. And when God is working on your character, how many of us are like, oh, thank you, God. Change that. That's what, that feels great. Could you do that some more? It's it's perfectly the George George McDonald image of the fact that he he said here you are you live in a in an old cottage in the country George McDonald always wrote in the country Scottish settings he's a, he was a Scotsman uh, anyway you're in this old cabin and you got a leaky roof and so you ask God to fix the the leak and God comes and he says absolutely I'll fix the leak. But then God starts tearing out walls and he starts adding on additions and then he puts on another floor and then he starts making, and you're like, wait a minute. All I wanted was the leak fixed. And God says to the man, well, I want to fix the leak, but I also want to rearrange the whole house. I want you living in a palace. I don't want you living in a shack, even if it is dry. I want you living in a mansion. And his last line in that uh, parable that he writes, God says to the man, because I'm moving in. I'm going to live here with you. And I ain't going to live in no shack. Now, it's not a perfect parable. No, not, Only Jesus' parables are perfect. God is already in us. But what God is doing is creating increasing our faith. So when God starts changing things, it's going to be painful. And you're going to fail. Probably pretty badly. (laughs) But take courage. All that pain in your soul over what adult you are is going to lead to something much, much better. Um, as I mentioned in Hebrews 4.2, we have good news preached to us as they did also the Exodus generation, but the word they heard didn't profit them because it was not united with faith. And so increased knowledge is definitely necessary, but without faith, increased knowledge 
uh, does not help our in, to increase our faith. All right, let's look at Moses here. So Moses is a man whose faith waxes and wanes. I should and I should have put it on the board. I would have known I'd go short for time. But Hebrews 11:2 says, I'm sorry, Hebrews 11:1, 1, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And faith is the assurance of things hoped for, and the conviction of things not seen. That's a great definition of faith. Right there, faith means, therefore, uh, faith is uh, tan- when when God's communication to you is as tangible as as real to you as tangible reality. But with us, faith. I mean, you could be completely committed in your faith, and you should know. And I think you do. But it's always worth being reminded that faith will wax and wane. And that's natural for us. You're going to have days of great faith and you're going to be a happier person for it. And then there's going to be days of doubt and you're going to be a more miserable person for that. And this is just because of who we are. We're sinners, we doubt, and God is patient. We have great examples in the Old Testament. I love Moses' example here. Uh, As you know, Moses is out in the wilderness for 40 years and then God appears to him in a burning bush. Moses turns to the bush and goes and speaks with God. And it's very interesting. In Exodus, we have a change from Genesis because in Genesis, God comes to Abraham as a man and goes right up to Abraham and speaks with him face to face. But in Exodus... Exodus emphasizes the holiness of God and you know Moses doesn't see the face of God what Moses sees is a bush and fire so what Moses sees is fire you're not going to run up and touch the fire because uh, you'll get burned plus God says to Moses stay back take off your sandals you're standing on holy ground so what we have, we do have a change when we come into Exodus and an emphasis on the holiness of God. So uh, God told, tells him to go back to Egypt, that he's the right man for the job. Moses says to God, I'm not a good talker. Why don't you send somebody else? Actually, in the narrative, God gets angry at Moses for not you know, stepping up. But God doesn't give up on him. Uh, He ends up going to Egypt with his brother Aaron to help him. God gives Moses the ability to do three signs. His staff will turn into a serpent. His hand, when he sticks it into his cloak, will turn white. A lot of people think it's leprosy. The Hebrew doesn't necessarily say that. But when he puts his hand back into his cloak, his hand is healed again of whatever skin disease it is. And then God says, if you take water from the Nile and pour it on the ground, it'll turn to blood. So you got Aaron with you. You got these three miracles that you can do at any time. Now go down there and tell the Israelites, go to the leadership of Israel and tell them, we're here to tell Pharaoh that he's got to let our people go. And Moses well, he goes up to Pharaoh. Yeah, when he goes to Israel, the Israelites are like, yeah, okay, we're on board. Well, that's the first hurdle, and he's over it. The Israelites are cool with that. They, they're willing to follow Moses. And then he goes to Pharaoh, and with great boldness, he says to Pharaoh, what actually Aaron does. You know, Moses is probably over there saying, speak to him. And Aaron says, you have to let us, all the Israelites, go three days' journey into the wilderness and worship God. And Pharaoh says, I don't think so. And when Pharaoh says no, Pharaoh gets so mad about it that that's when he tells his people, tell the Israelites they've got to make just as many bricks as they always did, except we're not going to give them the straw. They have to go get their own straw. So the people complain to Pharaoh. Pharaoh says, hey, blame Moses. And they do. They blame Moses. 
They tell Moses, look, why did you do this? Why did you come down here? They're beating us. They're abusing us. All you've done, Moses, is make our lives a living hell. Thanks. Thanks a lot. And here's what Moses says to the Lord. Look at Exodus 5.22. Then Moses returned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you brought harm to this people? Why did you ever send me? Ever since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done harm to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. It's like, this is my new favorite verse lately. I just love this. God, why did you send me? You're not doing what you said you would do at all. It's incredible. And what God does, and you can read right after it, God doesn't say, shut up, Moses. (laughs) That's what we would say. And fire him. Be like, yeah, you know, I picked the wrong guy for the job. God encourages him. God helps him. God restores him. And and he says, look, Moses, we are going to do this. God is not daunted by this. And he just, what did Moses need? Because Moses obviously is going to become a great man of God. If not one of the greatest men of God. And why? God chose him. Guess what? He chose you. That's what the Word of God says. He chose you. And God does not give up on him. God doesn't fire him, and God's not going to fire you either. You're elected by God because you believed in Christ as your Savior. It is God's will that your faith increase. And God is going to bring trial. Certainly, this is trial for Moses. This is not a surprise to God that Pharaoh would respond the way that he did. God told Moses before he even went down there that he was going to harden Pharaoh's heart. That Pharaoh wasn't going to give in easy. So, is it easy for Moses? No, it's not. It won't be easy for us either. But what we're to know is that God is not going to give up on us. God is going to get us there. And God is, you know, and we should... We should have and this is what hope is hope looks to the future and says you know what god is going to make me a mature person in faith i'm going to be a mature believer meaning i'm going to believe and and what uh, that means is that i'm going to have a life that is full all right lacking nothing i'll read you james again and we'll wrap it up here James 1, 2, and 4, 2 through 4. Consider it all joy, brethren, when you encounter various trials, like Moses, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete and lacking in nothing. You see, mature faith depends on God for everything. And so I could be dirt poor. But I lack nothing. Somebody could say, wow, you really don't have much. And I would respond, I have everything. I have the universe. I have the Lord as my everything. He fills me. This is what faith does. And you see, faith is something that needs to be revisited. Quite a bit, actually, I would think. Because it's really the foundation of everything that we do. We walk or live by faith and not by sight. Let's pray. Thank you, Father. Thank you for your patience. Thank you for your encouragement. Thank you that your word is so rich for multiple examples of people over thousands of years. A great man like Moses who's weak, A great man like the Apostle Paul who's weak. Even our Lord and Savior in Gethsemane was filled with weakness as he just simply depended upon you. Your will, not mine, be done. And Father, you're leading us to do the same, that we may be completely dependent upon you in all things. 
and therefore experience happiness. Other thoughts are not that. Thoughts of the world, thoughts of self, thoughts of pride. They darken our souls, make us miserable. But you, Father, are always there waiting and ready for us when we return in humility. You are ready to heal and to encourage and strengthen us. Thank you so so much, Father, for who you are. In Christ's name, amen.